Practical Research Parenting Podcast. Here's your host, Nicole Weeks. Hello, I'm so excited about talking to Associate Professor Kathy McMahon today. Kathy was one of my favourite lecturers and tutors at uni. She has extensive research experience in the psychology of pregnancy, parent-infant relationships and parenting. Like me, she's passionate about seeing research findings making real improvements for parents and children. Kathy's also involved in evaluating interventions to improve parent-child relationships and development. I really can't wait to learn from Kathy, so I won't make you wait any longer. Here's the interview. So what is attachment and how does it form? Well, that's a big question. Attachment is the way in which caregivers and infants connect with each other, Mm. particularly around um, times of stress or threat. So that's the essence of what attachment is according to attachment theory. Okay, so it is particularly in times of stress, that's sort of part of the definition? I think that's a really important part of the definition because I think attachment can mean lots of things. It can mean connection, um, you know, it can mean um, some form of relationship. But in the sense that uh, developmental psychologists um, working from an attachment theory approach would see it, it really is about particularly about how uh, individuals relate to each other and, and um, how those relationships are, are used to help people to manage times of threat and stress. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Um, so how does it form? So when um, Bowlby first described this phenomenon, he looked at all sorts of other species apart from humans. And basically what he argued was that um, from the very beginning of life, uh, infants are programmed uh, with an attached set of attachment behaviours in order to um, achieve the caregiving they need for their own survival. Okay, so, so that would be like the imprinting of chicks following the mother around, that sort of yes, thing? Yes, but, it, but in an attachment it's more about, yes, that's obviously a survival thing, but being a, a set of behaviours that will enable yeah, the infant to achieve closeness to their caregiver in order to achieve protection and safety. Okay, so clinging to the mother in trying to signal the mother mm-hmm. holding on, which which is often referred to as like a contact maintaining behaviour. Yeah, so so crying, um, moving toward the caregiver, and then clinging on or maintaining contact would be what you would see in a very young infant. Okay, and this forms some more ongoing kind of bond. So the so then according to the theory, what happens is that. The infant's um, attachment system will be automatically activated when they're threatened or distressed, and they will engage in those attachment behaviours. And at the same time, caregivers or adults in, in humans and other species have a set of caregiving behaviours that are activated in response to the signals the infant gives out. So if the infant attachment behaviours elicit predictable, supportive, responsive caregiving from their parent, then repeated experiences of this kind become encoded mentally in the child's mind um, as expectations and what we call schema about relationships and attachment. So that's how the um, experiences become kind of pervasive 
pattern of relating. Okay. So, and it's an important point that it's a pattern because I guess, I mean, no one's a perfect parent and we sometimes feel like we fail at being as responsive as we'd like to be, but it's, it's how responsive you are generally and overall that I guess forms this. And in fact, it was, um, I think Winnicott, one of the colleagues of John Bowlby, who coined the phrase good enough parenting or good enough mothering. And it's, of course, true that no parent can be responsive 100% of the time, but it's the overall pattern of, of being generally predictably available in an emotional sense that the child will encode or represent in their minds. And they'll take that set of experiences and expectations forward into other close relationship experiences. Okay. So even in later relationships with um, potential spouses and that sort of thing, even that far? Yes. So the theory would argue that, that the first thing would might be that they might take those sets of expectations into their relationships with, say, their childcare mm-hmm. provider or their preschool teacher and then teachers and then in adolescence and adulthood, um, other intimate close relationships such as partner relationships. Okay. And obviously new relationships they form aren't always going to fit to the same expectations. So does that then change the original attachment or do they form new kind of attachment and rules? So I think that's a really nice question. According to Bowlby's theory, attachment is a dynamic construct. So while the first year of life and the experiences of caregiving are very influential, there is still room for change and revision. So if the child's caregiving experiences change, even if your family circumstances might change where a parent who's very emotionally available may um, may become very ill or have um, some kind of constraints where they can't be as available to the child, well, then it's possible for that child's attachment representations to be revised. Mm-hmm. Um, likewise, a child with a perhaps less than um, optimal availability of a caregiver in the first year of life, if those circumstances improve, then the child can move from having negative to more positive attachment um, representations. And this fluidity is important and it it's applies right across the lifespan so that it does mean that at later times in a child's life, a more supportive relationship can be corrective and the, and the individual can update and revise the way that they, they process and think about close relationships. Okay, that's wonderful. So it's relatively stable but can be changed. So it would be brought into new relationships Yes. But then could well change throughout the course of that those new relationships. Based on the experiences that and, and really in many ways that's the theory that, that underpin that's the idea that underpins all sort of corrective therapy type experiences. Um, that if someone has a different kind of experience or indeed um, with us a, a very you know, someone whose parents perhaps were not very emotionally supportive, who who gets into a relationship with a partner who is very emotionally available, they also can um, you know, revise or um, um, change the way they, they process and think about attachment. Okay, wonderful. And is there anything special about those first three years of life that makes these attachments faster forming or anything like that? Or is this- Yes, so we, we, know, we know that the, the first three years of life are a period of very rapid brain development where there's a huge amount of myelination of the nervous system going on. 
and a great deal of plasticity of the brain. And so experiences in those early years are very influential um, in setting up actually neurological and uh, patterns of behaviour. Mm. Um, so we do know that, that early experience is particularly important that the quality of care in that time, you know, can really provide a, a resilience to the child later on. But we also know that there is always the potential for some change, but it's perhaps more difficult to achieve, uh, say, in adolescence than it might have been earlier in life. Okay, yeah. So can you talk us through the different types of attachment? Okay, so John Bowlby, who was the original attachment theorist, described the phenomenon of secure attachment. And then Mary Ainsworth, who was a collaborator with him and a psychologist, went on to develop a, 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 a laboratory paradigm where she could look at different patterns of attachment behaviour in infants um, when they were uh, exposed to a mild interactive stress, which was a separation from their parent. So that paradigm was called the strange situation procedure and it involved activating the child's attachment system by taking them to a strange room and then the mother leaving them alone in the room or with a stranger in the room and the psychologist observing watch very closely um, what the child does um, when their attachment system is activated, whether they and what they do in particular when they're reunited with the parents. So when the parent comes back, they look for whether the child approaches the parent, seeks contact with the parent, and also whether the parent is able to settle and comfort the child so that the child can resume play and exploration. So based on observing lots of children going through this very standardised procedure, um, Mary Ainsworth was able to describe initially three different patterns of behaviour that she observed. Um, one which was a secure pattern in which the child uh, was distressed by separation, uh, sought contact with the parent as soon as the parent returned, was readily comforted by the presence of the parent and then was able to re-engage with exploration. So that was considered the optimal uh, secure pattern. Mm. she observed that some infants actually rather than approach the parent appeared to almost avoid the parent and, and become very occupied in play and exploration and didn't didn't actually seek that kind of closeness and she called that pattern avoidant and then so avoidant children were still distressed when the parent left no these children also appeared not to be that distressed by the parent leaving the room. But um, subsequent research showed that if you took physiological measures of the child's stress, they were in fact stressed, but they didn't um, express that distress. Mm, so almost as if they'd learnt that expressing distress didn't actually change the environment or didn't change their mother's response. Yes, and the theory was, and in fact it was supported by Mary Ainsworth doing a lot of very detailed home observations, that if a child had a parent who who was uh, unresponsive or discouraged um, them when they approached and reached for contact and tended to redirect them to play, the child would internalise that and actually really even at quite a young age stop making those bids for closeness in the first place. Hmm, okay, very interesting. Um, so that avoidant style was still associated with less optimal outcomes than the secure style. 
Yeah, so children who were avoidant whilst actually often quite competent in terms of play and Mm. learning um, tended not to form such close friendships once they were in a school environment. They tended to uh, take that avoidant style into their interactions with, you know, teachers and so not establish such close bonds with them and were more likely to have um, behaviour problems in school settings like bullying other children and so on. Okay, yeah, very interesting because I'd imagine given the emphasis put on independence in Western cultures, that child could actually look to be quite um, competent and well-performing, I guess. Indeed, and in fact they may well be quite competent and well-performing and I think the important thing is to remember that attachment theory doesn't seem to explain everything about Mm. It's really specifically looking at those intimate relationships and, and, and even more specifically this notion of how you relate to others when you're under threat. And so it's true that those children may perform quite well and learn quite well and that they may, but they may be vulnerable in terms of that sort of social emotional connection and in terms of the relationships they have with other children. Mm, very interesting. And I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were going to mention a third one. That's okay. No, it's good. I, I got on a bit of a roll. So the third pattern that has been observed is the child who um, is extremely distressed by the parent's um, separation from the parent um, and certainly approaches the parent when the parent returns and seeks contact, but that the the contact from the parent doesn't seem able to soothe or settle the child. Um, And so the child then is not able to resume independent play. And sometimes these children will also be observed to uh, express not just um, distress but anger at the parent and and perhaps when the parent uh, seeks to hold them, they'll push them away or struggle. So the the word ambivalent has been described. But really it's a, a pattern of anxious attachment where although the child is clearly close to the parent, the parent doesn't seem able to act as a secure base to support the child's independent exploration. Okay. And what sort of, do you know what sort of parenting behaviours would produce this kind of attachment as opposed to the... um, The avoidant one. The avoidant one, yeah. So what, what's been observed is that the parents of children who develop this anxious ambivalent pattern are maybe um, inconsistently available. So that's one, one scenario where sometimes the parent is emotionally responsive to the child, other times very um, un- unresponsive. And so the child develops a strategy of exaggerating or uh, amplifying their needs and for closeness um, in order to try to pull the parent in. So that's one kind of dynamic that's been associated. And I guess the other would be a parent who's very unsure and tentative about being able to soothe and settle their child. Um, So they may um, make some kind of attempts to calm and settle the child, but maybe not providing quite as much support as the child needs. And the child might respond to that by kind of, again, amplifying or exaggerating um, the, their 
um, expression of those connection mm. needs. So this might be the case, for example, and I know on my worst days I'm like this, where you try to settle a child and, and you're just not in emotionally the right space and can't spend the time you need to go all the way. If a, if a parent was like that all the time. I guess exactly. And I, exactly, and your example is a good one. So a lot of parents, when they're really tired um, or, or maybe a little unwell or have got a lot on their plate, <laughs> might might be, you know, find themselves not quite giving the child enough or what the child really needs on that occasion. Mm-hmm. But it's more when this is a consistent pattern that it's um, a concern. Yeah, so... Yes, of course, nobody's perfect all of the time, but it's really much more that when it's a consistent pattern for the child that the child will, you know, actually develop sort of defensive attachment behaviours. Yeah, okay. And what roughly what proportion of children develop secure attachments versus the others? So really only about 50 to 60% in typical populations, mm-hmm. um, which really tells us that we're not talking about abnormal development or pathology we're talking about individual differences mm. in how people relate so so i think quite important not to overinterpret the insecure patterns are quite functional for that parent and child you know they kind of are a, a way in which the child adapts to the type of parenting so is that 50 60 percent are actually insecure no secure secure yes secure that's what I but think. it's you know almost half are not. And so, of course, we know then that we're not dealing with abnormal pathology. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And what, what are the effects of attachment in later life? You've sort of touched on it. So I think the most useful way to think about it is that secure attachment is, is a protective or resiliency factor. So if the child's had this grounding of predictable, trustworthy, emotionally responsive caregiving, then they take a sense of trust and optimism into new relationships and that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So if they approach new relationships with that positive set of expectations and you you tend to get a positive response from people and that reinforces you know a particular style of relating and a worldview that is adaptive Mm -hmm. um, and protective but also if the child has a secure attachment schema or set of mental representations about attachment that would indicate that they are they have learned that if you're upset you can turn to someone else and they're likely to be able to help you. Mm-hmm. But they'll also have learned that that having received that help you'll quite um, you can then move off and be independent again. So they they tend to therefore be people who use other people effectively when they need to, but also don't get too dependent on others and can be quite independent. So that's kind of the, you know, the, the, the adaptive benefits of having those, that sort of secure parenting. Okay. And I guess conversely, avoidant people would avoid sort of getting too close to people. Exactly. They've, even as an infant, they've learned not to express when you're upset yeah. um, and to busy yourself looking, sorting it out for yourself, which of course is adaptive if you're in an environment where people are not providing much support but it does mean that they may not get as close to other people 
as might be good for them. And also they they may not have developed the behavioural willingness to put their hand up when they're struggling and ask for help when it's appropriate. So they might try to battle on and manage things on their own when really they would do better to actually seek support from others. Okay, so I think that's a really important point is that all of these attachments really are in some way adaptive, at least when they're formed. It's a good way of responding to their environment. It's just that as they grow older, their environment may change. Yes, the same behaviours are not so adaptive um, and, and maybe limiting. Um, yeah. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So in relationships, everyone tends to have good days when they're really in tune and bad days when there is more conflict. Does this have any bearing on attachment or is it more stable than that? Look, I think that, that it's much more about overall patterns of being rather than moments or even off, off hours or off days. So I think, um, you know, I think everybody, of course, has times when their relationships are, when they're not as, as open and receptive or supportive as they might like to be. And it's much more about the overall context of the relationship. But having said that, obviously, if these uh, off days become more and more frequent, then that can really shift the pattern into a more negative trajectory. Yeah, yeah. So it's more about the pattern. And can mothers generally sense if their child's securely attached or not? Um, I guess if they if they uh, tune in to particularly how the child behaves, you know, in novel situations, whether the child tends to turn to them and seek their reassurance in those kinds of situations, how the child greets them when they've been away, and you know, they might get some indications from that. And um, if they notice that the child does seem very unfazed by being, at, you know. Uh, in strange places or cared for by people they don't know, they might think, well, this could be, could this child be avoided? But on the other hand, the child might just have a very open, confident temperament. Yeah, I guess temperament would play into it a lot in terms of there'd be a lot of individual difference and it'd be hard to tell what's, what's originating in the child and what's part of the sort of attachment, the relationship. Yeah, and I think probably for parents the, the more helpful thing is not to try and diagnose the attachment but rather to try to notice the child's attachment cues, to try to tune into when the child seems to be making bids for closeness or contact and to try to be as responsive to that and that would probably be a better way of applying these ideas than actually trying to you know, classify a particular attachment style. Yeah, okay. So can you talk a bit more about um, what does facilitate a secure attachment? So being responsive, what, what does that sort of really mean? How does it play out? So it really, I guess, means a parent is open to receiving the cues that the child is giving out. So even very young babies will communicate, you know, that maybe the parent's playing close and face-to-face and the baby might be looking away or looking down to indicate that they're a little overwhelmed and they need a little bit less intensity in the play. Uh, so if the parent's looking for those cues from the child or when the child seems to be communicating that they're tired and they don't feel like playing if the parent sort of backs off. That kind of attunement where you're looking for the cues, I guess being aware that even very young children do have minds and preferences and uh, and feelings and actually trying to get good at reading those. We know that that 
that parents who are able to do that, so first of all, they have to read the cues, notice them. But secondly, they have to be flexible enough to modulate their own behavior based on what they observe. Uh, so if the child seems to be, you know, wanting to explore a new environment and look around the room, then it, the parent who's who's really reading that will join with the child in that activity rather than trying to force something else on the child. So it's that that ability to 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 read the cues, but then to be a bit flexible in your own behaviour that is really taking on the child's perspective that seems to be crucial. Mm. And there are many instances in parenting where the what the child wants and what the mother feels is right it don't necessarily correspond. Is there, there anything you can sort of add to those sort of situations where you can read their cues, you know exactly what they want, but it's not the right time to give it to them or you can't? Okay. Or... So it's a very good question and I guess it, it depend, varies a little bit depending on the age of the child. But but the, there are some um, people who've developed an approach about attachment for parents called the circle of security um, and what they say, they have a very simple way of describing this issue, which is wherever possible, follow the child's lead and wherever necessary, take charge. So the child, of course, still needs a parent who, um, but, you know, we don't want parents to, to be following the child's cues and leads in situations where it might be unsafe or inappropriate. If a child doesn't want to go to bed and it keeps giving cues that they don't want to go to bed, the parent needs to, of course, take charge and recognise that the child needs their sleep um, at some point. But that can also be done in a way that whilst firm is also emotionally warm and supportive rather than critical and punitive. Yeah, okay. So you can still recognise and acknowledge the child's wants and desires whilst um, when necessary, sort of putting your foot down. Exactly. So so even just the act of saying, I know that you want to stay up and keep playing, but I'm sorry you're going to bed now, is going to be very different to just, no, you're going to bed. Yeah. So, yeah, there's that recognition of the child's perspective that makes the child feel um, that, like a person. Mm, yeah. Okay. And what can hinder the development of a secure attachment? So I guess that there, um, most parents want to do the best they can for their child and try to do that, but there are a number of things in their current circumstances. So if they don't have very much support or if they're living in you know, very difficult circumstances where they're having to put all their efforts into just uh, surviving rather than interacting with the child, that could that could hinder. But the other thing that we know is important is the experiences that they themselves had when they were an infant and young child with their own caregivers. So we know that quite a lot of the individual differences in attachment uh, relate to these intergenerational experiences where their own early experiences will have been encoded and they may not even be consciously aware of them and they may come into play when they're interacting with their child. Mm, so I guess a parent who, for example, was avoidant and if that hasn't changed through subsequent relationships, they would bring that into their relationship with their child as well. Exactly. So let's say their mother was very much encouraging them to be independent and not clingy and not ever demanding and needy and they had adapted to that, then they may well reenact that same pattern with their own child. Mm. Um, yes. 
Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So one of the concerns about controlled crying approaches is that they require parents to be unresponsive to distress and that it may teach babies to stop communicating distress. Do you think these are valid concerns? Um, I, I, I say yes with some with some qualifiers. So I think that in general to to not be responsive to the child's distress is going to communicate to the child that you're not emotionally available to them. But and and, and in, in general uh, approaches to settling the child that involve you know just gradually reducing the level of of support the parents giving to the child to soothe and regulate are preferable. But my qualifier would be that, you know, that thing about whenever necessary, take charge in the sense that in in a situation with a very entrenched sleep problem where the child, the child does need to be given some opportunities, I guess, to learn to regulate themselves. Mm -hmm. If the parent provides too much support, then the child doesn't get that opportunity. And if the child then, you know, maybe in the second year of life, is still kind of very, very uh, entrenched in patterns of not being able to get themselves off to sleep, you know, it might not be so unreasonable for a parent, especially if that parent's exhausted, not coping, to sometimes use these controlled crying approaches. But I would see it as a last resort rather than a first resort. And I would qualify it by the the age and stage of the child. But I, I do think it's important that the parents, um, when parents are totally exhausted, you know, they can't be available to the child for the other 23 hours of the day. So sometimes, you know, it can get to the stage where it is very difficult. Yeah, and I guess when we measure responsiveness, usually we're looking at parents during the day. And if they're not responsive at night but that's what gets them the sleep that they need, then... There's sometimes some some trade-offs, you know, life's not perfect. And so I think, my, you know, my, my response would be to, to, to certainly not go straight to controlled crying, but, but that in some circumstances it might be that a parent might need to use that technique and as long as the rest of their relations with that child are supportive and emotionally available, then no long-term damage is likely. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, So there's also a lot of pressure for mums to return to work early now. Does this have any effect on attachment? Well, I think that it depends, again, on the circumstances. Really, attachment is about what goes on when the mother and the child are together. And so, you know, even if a mother does return to work and means the child's being left in the care of another, it's really the quality of the relationship the mother has with that child when she returns before she goes, or the father, for that matter. I mean, the same patterns apply to fathers. So I think there is no evidence that, that actually that I'm aware of that if a mother's working, she's going to be less likely to be securely attached to her child than if she's not. And really the more important factor is the quality of the alternate care that's provided for the child. So if the mother returns to work but has is fortunate enough to have, be able to get the child into good quality childcare or a, have a nanny or a grandparent who's very emotionally responsive to the child mm-hmm. or, or alternatively share the care with the father, then there's absolutely no reason why that child would not um, have a secure relationship with that mother and probably a secure relationship with the alternate caregiver as well. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So children are very good at figuring out the different environments that they're in. So I guess if even if they're only seeing their mum 
in the morning and the afternoon, they know now mum, now mum's home. And that's, that's sort of the time when it's applying to the attachment with their mum. That's right. They have, they can have different attachments with different people. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, people use the cliche quality time and it's often overused. But in fact, if the fact of the parent working and this could apply to a mother or father meant that they were so exhausted that they weren't able to be emotionally available to the top of the evening, that's when it might be problematic. But if if the parent is, is able to manage work demands that are not excessive and you know, and then still be able to be emotionally available when they are with the child, then I would think the attachment relationship would be quite robust to that. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Something that I feel is a concern with work is that often it takes the mother away in the middle of the day, which leaves her there for pretty much the two most stressful times of day with the children, which is getting them out of the house and getting them to bed. Yes, and that can be very tiring and demanding. And I think that is an issue that that is quite difficult for parents to manage. So, you know, again, having a supportive partner or, or extended family around can really make a big difference in those sorts of situations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so as long as the parents got the capacity to stay responsive during the time that they have with their children, then that's sort of the most important thing. Yes, and and I guess take the responsibility for ensuring that the quality of the alternate care is good as well. Yeah. Um, That's going to be important for the child's development. And, of course, that's often easier said than done in terms of the very high costs of childcare and limited choices that some people have. Yeah, yeah. I also read some theoretical concerns, and they were only three theoretical, that when young children are put into childcare with no attachment figures, this can trigger the attachment-seeking response, and that causes a lot of distress for the child. What concerned me about the theoretical account was that was the suggestion that children may disengage from the response in unhelpful ways and might appear to have adapted to childcare but actually still be in a high state of stress, sort of like um, you described for the avoidant children. Um, So how likely do you think this is in a childcare situation? Oh, well, I think it's it's quite likely if if the childcare centre is poorly organised and poorly staffed. So there are people working from an attachment theory framework with childcare workers, making them aware that they are alternate attachment figures for children and helping them to structure the environment so that there's some consistency of care, so that different workers might be paired with different children, so that that you know, that the child wasn't wasn't um, seeing different people all the time. And even some work around showing childcare workers how to be a secure base so so they might explain to them the benefits of perhaps sitting in a particular spot so the child can roam around but when they get upset or need anything, they know where that particular work is going to be. So I think that there are issues if the if the quality of the of the, uh, the um, childcare is is low and it, or if there are too few adults, particularly for very young children. Um, but that in high quality childcare services, you know that childcare workers can actually uh, you know provide that secure base and safe haven experience that children need. Okay, so I guess when you're looking at childcare centres, what you're looking at is how responsive the individual caregivers are and the sort of turnover, I guess, in the centre and and how stable the caregivers are. 
Exactly. And you might not take quite so much notice about how beautiful the rooms are or the toys. You might really want to look at, observe how the caregivers interact with the children, ask the centre manager how they organise the, you know, the, the ratio, the relationships between the carers and the children and, and, and exactly staff turnover would be a real concern, I think. Okay. So getting on to uh, changing insecure attachments. So you touched on that they can change in the future. And I, I believe Circle of Security is an intervention for re-establishing secure attachments. Can you tell us a bit more about the approach? Okay. So, yeah, I think that the idea is that that an attachment is represented in the child's mind or the young person's mind and based on those experiences we've talked about and that if the child has what's often called a corrective attachment experience, so one that is different from their prior experience, then they have the capacity to, to rework those mental representations and expectations. So the idea um, in the social security approach is really to translate these kind of theoretical principles into very simple language that any parent can understand. So they represent Bowlby's ideas of the secure base and safe haven by using a, a diagram of a circle and they show that the child needs the parent's support to, to move out into the world, which they call the top of the circle, and explore the world, but then also needs the child to welcome them back and recharge their batteries and, and comfort them if they overreach. So the approach really tries to teach parents the dynamics of how attachment relationships work, but also to train parents to, to recognise their child's cues around their attachment needs. And it is very accessible and quite easy for parents to understand. Okay, so if a parent were going through this, how how long would a usual intervention be? So the there is a, the most commonly used version of the intervention is an eight week parent training uh, thing, which is usually run in groups where the parent would attend for two hour sessions. DVD material is used to show the patterns of behaviour that children engage in with their parents, and these DVDs often help parents to recognise the same patterns that might be happening in their own relationship. And then the group talks together about strategies that you could use to, to change these patterns if they seem to be not working well. Hmm. So in, in some ways, I guess it would act as a parent support group as well in terms of figuring out how to actually deal with a lot of yes. difficult situations that arise. Exactly. So parents will talk about how they manage and, and support each other in the process and the, the group facilitators will, will kind of lead that, that process. But, yes, it's, it's both a supportive group but also a kind of educational experience, I think. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, very interesting. I guess it would get into applying these sort of what are, I guess, to some extent abstract principles to actually daily life with your children. Yes, exactly, and, and actually presenting them in really simple ways so that it's very easy for people who've never studied psychology, let alone attachment theory, to actually understand. And often parents will say, well, that they're, they're actually after doing it are seeing the things they're doing with the child in a different way. Mm, yeah, what okay. Things from the child's point of view. Yeah, so helping the parent to get into the child's shoes a bit more as well. So if some of my listeners are worried that their child might be insecurely attached, what would you recommend? 
So I think the first thing I would recommend is, you know, goes back to what I was saying a little earlier that they they might want to just try to reflect a little bit on how they are reading or not reading the, their child's cues around attachment. So just sort of step back in the sense from, um, you know, in your mind at least and think about what you're doing when the child seems to be upset or needy or not coping, how you how they're responding. So look at their own behaviour and try to just become a little bit more aware of maybe some of the the automatic patterns that they may feel might not be working very well and see if they can, you know, modify those in small ways. But then I think that if they're really worried about the child's, uh, how the child relates to them, it might be very useful to talk to a professional or see if they could find their way to something like a circle of security group where they might be able to learn more skills around reading the child's attachment needs and some strategies for supporting the child in those in those um, times of high emotional arousal. Yeah, okay. And I guess uh, part of that would be self-care as well because I guess if the parent isn't coping emotionally, that could well be part of the problem. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I, there's a quote that I really like from John Bowlby saying, if you want to look after the children, cherish the parents. So yes, it's true. The parent needs also a secure base and safe haven, you know, mm-hmm. for the, the work of parenting is really challenging and it's a lot, there's a lot of learning involved. So they also need uh, someone they can turn to when they feel upset or threatened and who can recharge their batteries. Mm-hmm. So yes, is, is a, you know, may well be that if they can't find that through their informal networks, through their friends or through their family or their partner, they might, they might like to look at finding that in a professional relationship with a, with a you know, child, um, child development professional. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. So while it's important for parents to understand research like this, I don't want to add any more pressure or stress to parenting. So do you have any advice around a single thing to focus on to promote good attachment or anything else to ease that sort of stress and pressure we feel? Well, I guess the single thing to focus on might be the children's demands Children can be demanding, but that it, it, it's sometimes possible to reframe their demands as needs. So that if you you just take a step back when a child seems to be behaving in an, a very demanding and um, perhaps unreasonable way, and think about what might be the emotional need that's driving that behaviour, mm-hmm. sometimes that can really make a difference into how you respond. And I guess, um, you know, of course we don't want more stress or pressure and children's behaviour can be challenging and all parents are trying to do their best. But just, just I guess, trying to practice taking that step back and, and having a look at the situation just uh, from the child's point of view and, and maybe trying to break into some of those automatic patterns that don't seem to be working very well. Mm, that's really good advice. I guess as adults, when we need a drink of water, we just go and get a drink of water. But I guess for children, sometimes it can feel a bit more like an emergency than that. Yes, exactly. And, and particularly children have different temperaments and some children 
are more needing of support than others and, and those children can sometimes be experienced as difficult or demanding mm-hmm. but if we reframe that and think of those children as just needing that little bit of extra help then that can actually change the dynamic a little bit. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.practicalresearchparenting.com forward slash attachment. I completely agree with Kathy's stance on controlled crying. If you're looking for gentle alternatives to sleep training, I now offer three products that can help. The Sleep Options Wizard is an interactive online program that selects approaches given your child's age and situation. The guidance package provides the Sleep Options Wizard, email guidance through the choice, preparation, implementation and maintenance phases, and social support. The consultation package provides the Sleep Options Wizard, two Skype consultations, a personalised sleep plan and email support. Together we'll definitely get your sleep issues fixed or I'll give you a full refund. To access all of those, you can just go to sleepoptionswizard.com or I'll also include a link in the show notes.